The winner is Gloria Graham. The band of the Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this week we have a returning guest uh, who previously joined us to discuss the 1978 Best Actress race. And like many of us, is Actress Mad. You will know him from his blog and YouTube channel, Fritz and the Oscars. And rather like Cher and Madonna, um, he is identifiable by by one name, and that name is Fritz. Uh, welcome back to the show, Fritz. Hi, yeah, it's iconic. Hey, guys, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's, it's great to be back. And thanks for coming back, particularly because in our last episode, Chris uh, laid into Judy Holiday quite viciously. <laughs> yes, so. Yeah, it was horrible. Uh, oh, dear. I, I, have to, I have to be honest, I haven't listened to the last latest one yet, but now I definitely will, and then I will decide what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, we, we were afraid you'd listen to it before and then refuse to come on, so maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, probably is. Uh, we had a chat a couple of months ago about what category um, we should do for this episode. Uh, Fritz, as ever, wanted to talk about actresses. So I kind of said, how about maybe we do supporting this time? Um, and 1952 was one of the years that you suggested. So why did that year stick out as, you know, a good field to discuss? Well, it's it's like with, when we did Best Actress 1978. So I had one very rather selfish reason. That was simply that I just had done my videos on the 52 Best Actress series. And so I already saw a couple of performances and I thought, oh, okay, that make, makes it a little bit easier. But also because 52 has a really legendary movie and performance. It has some great Hollywood stars. It feels like quintessential 50s Oscar category. And not to spoil anything right away, but I think it's also a very noteworthy category because there is a very, very large gap of quality between two performances which kind of makes it unique so i just was very interested to discuss this yeah and lots of first-time nominees as well this year um that too yeah and, and some we didn't see again yeah maybe for good reason but um <laughs> the, the nominees this year were gene hagen in singing in the rain colette marchand in moulin rouge terry moore in comeback little sheba Thelma Ritter in With a Song in My Heart and the winner Gloria Graham in The Bad and the Beautiful. Um, let's begin with Jean Hagen, uh, her only career nomination. Um, and I don't think Singing in the Rain needs much of an introduction, to be honest. It was um, was received quite modestly, I think, by critics and audiences at the time, but you know has since been featured on countless best of lists it's number 10 on this year's Sight and Sound Top 100. Um, let's dive into Singing in the Rain. Is it deserving of the effusive praise? It feels a little bit wrong to start with this one because it's just the big one in this category. And 
yeah, like you said, it doesn't really need any introduction. Um, personally, I probably wouldn't put it in my top 10 of all time movies list. I wouldn't even say that it's my favorite musical of all time. But I'm totally aware of the significance it has. It is a joy to watch. It is incredibly entertaining. The dance numbers, the musical numbers, they fit so seamlessly into the whole thing. And everything about this movie just gives you, puts you in such a good mood. Um, it is funny. It is entertaining. The dance numbers are all first class. So there's really nothing you can complain about. Um... And it feels, yeah, it kind of feels pointless to talk about Singing in the Rain because there has been, so much has been said about it already and so much has been written about it. It is a classic for a reason. Um, as I said, maybe not my personal favorite mo movie of all time, but I totally get what makes this movie so appealing. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't rank it as my favorite film either, um, but it's definitely amazing and I absolutely love it. Um, a lot of times we ask our guests, you know, where did the love affair with the Oscars start? Um, and I would say Singing in the Rain is where my love affair with movies really started. Um, kind of seeing Singing in the Rain, yeah, was a was a real turning point for me. I can see the, like, the magic of movies for the first time. Um, so it has a special place in my heart just for that. But also it's everything you just said. It's It's joyous. It's entertaining. It's just, it's funny as hell. Um... And I mean, Gene Kelly, obviously a genius uh, in pretty much everything he does, so not surprising. Um, and I, I guess maybe the the modest reception it got was because it came on the back of An American in Paris, which was so kind of rapturous, and it won Best Picture and everything else, so maybe um, the follow-up was doomed to uh, pale in comparison, although now, as you say, it's kind of rightly uh, held in its proper regard, so time was kind to it. Yeah, I think, I mean, what always amazes me with Singing in the Rain is the, the sheer creativity and effort that, that's gone into the musical numbers themselves and is just kind of off the scale. Like, I don't think the songs themselves are that amazing, but it's just the way that they're choreographed and there's so much physical comedy in, uh, in Make Him Laugh with Donald O'Connor and he's got to navigate the door and a, a mannequin, among other things, and then... With Moses, supposes the tap routine and the the general synchronization, um, which would have had to have been done in one take, um, it, it's just really really impressive, um, and also the good morning sequence, um, is is exceptional. I think also Debbie Reynolds holds her own well enough, um, because she wasn't a dancer, um. And I think Gene Kelly pointed that out to her quite plainly um, mm. and upset her a bit. But I think you could see at times, you know, she's not as sharp as the guys, but um, I still think she's a real revelation in the movie. I was just going to say, there's a fa famous uh, story where she was crying under a piano and Fred Astaire had to step in and kind of help her and, and get her on the right track. But yeah, definitely Gene Kelly was... Uh, had a reputation, didn't he? Um, and both Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds later commented that they really didn't enjoy working with him because he was such a perfectionist. Yeah, I also think that Debbie Reynolds more than holds her own um, against Gene Kelly. And to be honest, 
Donald O'Connor for me sometimes feels more like an athlete than a dancer, especially the the make them laugh number. For me, feels more like an Olympic sports number. And I I think what you said with um, an American in Paris, um, it's probably easy to understand at the time. So an American in Paris probably felt much more artistic because it obviously was in Paris. It was more serious. Singing in the rain might be a little bit more silly. So might not feel as important as an American in Paris or might f have felt at the time a little bit more like it's more or less the same with Gene Kelly doing his dance numbers. I mean, it's not like the 1952 Best Picture race was so amazing that they couldn't have found room for this one, but apparently they really didn't care too much for it. Well, I mean, they had they couldn't kick out Ivanhoe, right? Yeah, they could have kicked they could have kicked out the greatest show on earth. <laughs> also true. But what other nominations do you think the film deserved? Does it deserve director, actress? I think it would have deserved a lot of the big ones. Yeah, I think it would have deserved a lot of the big ones. Um, Gene Kelly is obviously um, perfect. Um, the kind of charm you cannot learn. Um, Debbie Reynolds um, would have been a deserving nominee over Betty Davis, definitely. Um if we, if we consider her leading, and I think I would. Um, so, yeah, the, the movie could have made it in a lot more categories, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think it could have been nominated for screenplay as well. Because uh, I think there's a lot of great lines in it. There's, it's It's got some really great satire of the movie business in there and the, the early days of sound. So I would have liked to see it get a nomination for that as well. And obviously Best Picture uh, should, have been a, should have been a given. Yeah, I think the... The screenplay is its biggest strength for me, like and and all of that poking, you know, Hollywood poking fun at itself and its own history, um, was the strongest part of it. And I think, you know, bearing in mind that it's not exactly distant history at this point, you know, it's only about twenty five years after the advent of sound, and um, that they made this movie, and they're freely admitting that they didn't have much of an idea about what they were doing, um. You know, the industry at the time, which is probably an exaggerated and, and farcical representation of that. But the point remains the same. And um, that comes to a hilarious head in a couple of scenes, you know, where Lena has to talk into the bush and um, the car the car crash preview screening um, of the Julian Cavalier. But, you know, I think often Hollywood takes itself too seriously and... There's maybe an example of that we're going to talk about later on. But I enjoy how this film sort of detailed how many people in Hollywood found it really difficult to kind of move with the times technologically. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that exaggerated, though, is it? Because you see some of the early sound pictures and they're not like B-movies. They're like major studio productions and they have those same bad sound issues and editing and, and out of sync uh, ridiculous you know no 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 yes 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 moments <laughs> so definitely all based based in fact for sure the early years of sound produced some real shit movies yeah so much so that they had to have a sound recording category right <laughs> to actually single out the decent the decent jobs <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's interesting because gene so gene kelly got a co-directing credit for this do you think the movie would have been different if he wasn't involved, 
creatively? Like, would it have been stodgier? Because Stanley Donan, I think, did Funny Face, right? But which was is a little bit stodgier than than this movie. I think I'm not really a fan of that one. But would is it better because Gene Kelly's involved? I mean, I don't know too much about the, the making of of Sing in the Rain, but I could imagine with Gene Kelly Kelly being such a perfectionist and probably very playing a very big part in all the dance numbers. And I can imagine him as the kind of leading actor who sits behind the camera next to the director and constantly gives his input on what should be done. Because I think also what helps it to to move along quickly is that. You know, apart from the Sid Cherie sequence, the musical elements are generally quite short, um, which I think stops stops it from dragging and the film kind of maintains its rhythm um, all the way through. But I think the three leads are, are very, very good. I think they're all very sprightly and convincing as performers. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of the reason why the film works. And I also enjoyed the the screwball elements of the romance um, between um, Kelly and uh, Debbie Reynolds. And I, I thought that she in particular dealt really well with that. And um, the comedy of the earlier scenes, I thought she did really well. Yeah, yeah. the movie has somehow a perfectly light tone where the comedy doesn't feel too much but constantly stays on this very charming level and fits very well into the overall plot and this is probably very hard to make and this is probably one of the reasons why the movie is so engaging to this day and to i mean to bring it on to to gene hagen um <laughs> that voice <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny we just saw gene hagen uh in the last uh episode in the asphalt jungle um, speaking normally, and then we go from that to this, where she's putting on this uh, incredibly screechy and annoying persona, um, and it's fantastic throughout. And the first time she speaks is just so hilarious. Um, it's it's like fifteen yeah. minutes into the movie, right? Uh, they keep her quiet until that point, then she just bursts out with that, you know, what's the big idea? Which I'm not even going to try to imitate because I can't do it. Um, and from there on, the whole th her whole character and her whole performance is just a highlight of the movie. And a mov the movie's pretty much all highlights, so that's saying something. Um, but she's such a great foil for Don and such a great antagonist. Um, and I love how, I don't want to talk for too long, but I, I just love how even in her more conniving moments, she's still kind of charmingly ignorant and naive. Like when she's going through her, her contract and she says, the party of the first part, and then she pauses and says, that's me. It's just so, so cute and so innocent, even when she's doing this incredibly manipulative thing. It's a, such a great thing. It's a great performance. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, go ahead already too far, but this is really one of the greatest supporting performances ever put on film, in my opinion. Um I mean, I love dumb blondes. I obviously love Judy Holiday, but I also love Jennifer Tilly. I love Mira Sovino. Um, but it's not like I automatically love them. So they really need to, to work to make me love them. And Gene Hagen brings 
everything to the table in this role. It is a performance for the ages. She doesn't steal the movie, for this the movie is probably too good, but she's still the best part of one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, her appearances are perfectly placed throughout it. She knows when to go big, she knows when to hold back. As you said, we have her at the beginning, she's silent for so long, but you see her facial expressions when, when she's standing next to Gene Kelly and he tells a story and she seems in total agreement with him and totally in harmony with everything that he says. So, so she, she's totally in character as a character before she finally explodes backstage and then really gets going. And as you already said, she can balance this antagonist, Morty, the evil character with this charming innocence. Absolutely love the way she watches the talkie and she's like, oh, I'm talking so great, don't I? And <laughs> or she is so charmingly helpless when they constantly tell her where she has to speak and she has no idea where the microphone is and it's 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 just perfect from start to finish yeah she turns it into such a showcase um i think you know in the preview screening the way that she's trying to act noble and gracious is this like marie antoinette-esque figure and um and the way that hagen you know, betrays her New York colloquialisms that she uses, like, randomly at the end of sentences. It's just such clever comedy work. Um, and then coupled with the sound of the pearls bouncing up and down, that scene's got to be one of the funniest in cinema. Um, and I think that's mostly because of her. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you, Chris, about the when the contract comes up, she even turns that into, like... Um, comedic even though it seems like a bit of a cartoon villain moment for the character um it's i did kind of love how she pronounced some of the long words in the contract and things like that so she eked comedy out of things that wouldn't necessarily be comedic yeah definitely i also love how detailed her work is so when when they are having the, the preview of the movie and she has this line this i can't stand him <laughs> and and you and in and in, in, in the training she always had this can't stand and in, and in the movie she al already mastered this can't that the teacher always told her but she still has this stand so she's halfway there but not completely yet and <laughs> no, I mean and I mean it gets to the point where I often actually find myself on her side just in, probably not in the contract um, discussion, but for example, when they are shooting the movie and it's like, oh, come on, this is the first talkie everybody's making. I'm sure not everything is her fault. And it's not like Dawn is doing a much better job. So give cut this woman some slack. She does the best she can. And I also love in at the beginning when they, do, when they are still in the silent movie where Gene Kelly does the silent acting a little bit exaggerated, like we imagine it from today's point of view. And But she is so perfect in doing it. So you can absolutely imagine her being a star of the silent era. Yeah, because I think it does kind of imply that Don isn't a great actor because he, he improvises some of the lines, he doesn't he? He changes it to, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then when the when the audience are walking out of the preview screening, there was somebody says, "Who wrote these? Who wrote this dialogue, or something like that?" <laughs> so yeah, well, that was a good like um, 
like you were saying, uh, Fritz, it's not all her, right, being stodgy and, and not used to the system. It's like Don thinks that just repeating I love you 20 times is going to be fine, and nobody picks up on that, that that's a horrible idea. Um, and they just say, yep, yep, just do that. That's fine. Um, yeah, so you're right. He He is not presented as like an Oscar worthy actor himself. So, um, which is another kind of, I think, uh, sly bit of Hollywood poking fun of itself as well. Although it, it's weird that before they shoot this scene with all the technical hiccups and all the ridiculous, um, problems before that they shoot a very elaborate musical production that, um, beautiful girls number. And that's like a, straight up 1950s musical number but within the film they're shooting that in 1929 and everything's perfect you know they're, yeah. they've got the camera <laughs> angles above it they've got the sweeping pans they've everybody's choreographed perfectly everything's recorded perfectly so the film does cheat a little bit there yeah i mean Essentially, when you say when 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 they get down to it, they're saying, "Oh, we have some technical problems with the um, what's the movie called, the Dueling Cavalier or something like this." And so we turn it into a musical with this big gotta dance number, and then we, we won't have any sound problems at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just to briefly mention that um, it is quite funny that when in the context of the film, Kathy is dubbing. Lena's dialogue, the spoken dialogue that she dubs is actually Gene Hagen speaking with her normal voice. Um, she's not she's not doing the singing, but she dubs Kathy dubbing Lena, uh, <laughs> which is just a funny little bit of uh, production trivia. It make, makes me appreciate um, her work even more. And a travesty that this was not nominated for Best Picture. Definitely, but I, but I have to say, if if they could, if they would nominate it only for one in one category, I'm glad that they, or in two categories, I'm glad that Gene Hagen is one of the Oscar nominations because that's that's if I could pick only one for the movie, it would be her. Okay, so next we're going to talk about Colette Marchand uh, in Moulin Rouge, and uh, this was Marchand's only nomination because uh, I think acting was not really her field. Um, uh, this is a biographical drama about the painter Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, directed by John Huston. And by all accounts, the release of the movie was accelerated um, so that it could qualify for Oscar consideration, which it managed to do at the 11th hour. Um, and in the review from Variety, they said that um, they felt that the rushing to release it meant that the film lacked polish and finish. Um, do you think that's fair? I have to say, um, I mean, I haven't watched this movie in decades, so it was like watching it for the first time. And I was surprised, personally, how visually stunning and modern it feels in various scenes, especially in the beginning when we are introduced to the Moulin Rouge with the dancing and the camera work. And I thought from a visual point of view the movie was quite overwhelming for me. Yeah, visually, it's beautiful. Um, John Huston really um, really had an eye for uh, color photography, I think, and um, his cinematographer, Oswald Morris, uh, shot the scenes really well. I think Huston told him to shoot it as if Lautrec was composing the shot. 
Um, so the, the color palette and the kind of muted tones and everything. Uh, and I think that really comes across. Um, and I agree that it still looks really good from a visual point of view, even, you know, 60 odd years later. Um, I got 70 years later now. Gosh. I, I do think maybe the rushing to production, it does feel like it could have been maybe a little fine-tuned a bit more in the editing room. Um, some sequences are a bit long, uh, others feel a bit rushed. Like the first, what should be the first half of the film kind of spills over a bit. Um, and so the second half of the film is a little bit, um, a, a little bit short-changed, maybe. Um, so I, I think the film could have been a bit shorter overall, but... Overall, I still like it a lot. Um, I think it's uh, I, I think it's very engaging, and I think it's a very interesting portrait of the artist. So, yeah, overall, I do like it. I liked elements of it. I wouldn't say I liked the film on the whole. Um, I think you're right about Oswald Morris's work is is interesting. It's got this really unique style about it, but I don't know if it's the the editing or um budgetary constraints but i did find the film too dark on the whole um the lighting seemed to be compensating for um the lack of sets at times um but and and for a two-hour movie i agree there's a fair amount of filler um there are a couple of lengthy musical performances some montages of artwork and scenes that kind of repeat what has gone before. So I, I kind of felt like it should have been shorter or it was lacking a character or a subplot somewhere along the way to fill the film out a little bit. Yeah, now that you mention it, makes sense. To be honest, when I watched it, it just felt like this typical 50s studio big production. They are just a little bit longer maybe and a little bit to feel a little bit more important so yeah I, I think that's pro you could say a lot of the movies from the time back could probably have used a little bit more editing and be a little bit more shorter um i think my major problem with the that with the movie itself was that i felt that the first half in my opinion would have been more engaging if it had been the second half because i Personally, for me, after the first half was over, I kind of lost interest in the plot. And it felt like the movie could have been over at that point, but it still went on for an hour because it had the second half. And I, I don't know. Do you think it could have had more of his childhood to start with? or I don't know. Probably for me, not. For me, the thing is, if we, if we go to Colette Marchand's performance already... I don't think it is a perfect performance, but it somehow feels essential and kind of like the performance that ends and starts the plot in a way. And so after her character is gone, it feels like a certain level of energy is missing from the movie. And I'm, I wouldn't say her performance is perfect. We get into that, into that later. But the moment she is gone, somehow the movie lacks a certain quality. And I don't think it finds... In the second, don't think in the second half it finds the right angle to pick this up again. Yeah, I think I had a problem with Marie Charlet as a character and the way that the film used that character. Um, 
because the story's constantly romanticizing the idea of Marie Charlet as this muse for Toulouse-Lautrec. Um, you'd think she'd be a bit more complex as a person. Um, it's very much a situation where you're thinking, why are you in love with this heinous woman? Um, and, you know, towards the end when uh, Miriam says to him, uh, uh, Suzanne Flon, Flon's character, I think she's quite good. She says to him late in the film, you know, tell me about Marie Charlet because she's got this painting of her. And I wanted to say to her, honey, you, you really don't want to know. Um, <laughs> she's just best left in the past, honestly. Um, so, you know, I've, she's very simple as a character and completely not worth the fuss. So I kind of found it really strange how much importance the film kept placing on Marie Charlet. I, I totally agree with you on that. I also think the actress probably feels more misdirected a lot of times there, because there is no reason why he should love her so much. Her performance doesn't give any reason. The screenplay doesn't give any reason. We're always just supposed to believe he is so fascinated by her, but she doesn't really offer anything to be so fascinating. But at the same time, there's still a certain level of energy that she brings to the movie that I like. And... It's somehow, when she is gone, I'm a little bit like the main character. I somehow want her to come back just to be this terrible person and make the movie a little bit more entertaining. So I probably like her for the wrong reasons. So from a purely, from a purely acting point of view, yes, there is a lot wrong with this performance, but I appreciate simply what she brings to it, even if it is maybe not the right thing she brings to it, but she brings something to it. I mean, it, it, it does feel like they've repurposed of human bondage to be about Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. Like there's a lot, it's kind of like replacing the club foot with the, the stunted leg growth and which I thought it was interesting how they explained that that was because his parents were cousins. I'm not sure if that's how medically informed that is. But um, aside from that, the film did contain eerily similar relationship dynamics to of human bondage so i wondered if that was in some way some kind of um inspiration is marie based on anybody real like i, I don't know too much about uh toulouse lautrec's life but is she an amalgamation of people he loved or what does anybody know i think it's more the t the type of women he was involved with mm. And again, I think if they had maybe used her character more in the second half of the movie and it, had, it hadn't been so... F and maybe he could have recognized how bad she is for him. And I don't know. The movie could have picked up more speed in the second half with her. As I said, I liked her. I might even say that she is my favorite performer in the movie. But again, I see that her performance is not completely correct. It's a very, it's a very strange case. Yeah, I think, I mean, the opening credits say introducing Colette Marchand, right? Which is always kind of a an indication that they want to build her up in some way, um, career-wise. Because she was this famous ballerina at the time. So it, it it's almost as if the studio are making a concerted effort to propel her into Hollywood stardom as this, you know, next big thing. Um and I think that that's part of why she got the nomination, to be honest. Um, 
I agree with you, Fritz, that she makes an impact and the film's more interesting when she's on screen. But I don't think the performance itself has many dimensions. And the motivations of Marie Charlotte, for me, were never in question. It was all kind of laid on very thick. This is what she's like. There wasn't much room for mystery or um, shade. Yeah, t- totally agree with you. There, there, there are no dimensions to her, and it, it is it, it is too obvious that she is only after his money. Um, yeah, <laughs> as I said, from a from a from a pure acting and character development point of view, it is not. There is a lot you can criticize here, but again, I just appreciate what she that she brings this dynamic to the movie and the role. And when she has left. Um, I'm, I was constantly, oh, come on, we get one more scene with her. We are not done with her. We need to see her again. And I was really grateful when they, when he finds her again in this, in this, in this sleazy bar. And again, it's the same. She is the same. She is very spiteful. She doesn't give any reason why he is so fascinated with her. But I was kind of glad that we got to see the character again. She definitely goes for it. I can't fault her on um, the efforts there, but... I just didn't get why she kept being so mean for seemingly no reason when he's trying to take her out to this nice place and give her a nice (laughs) meal and she's just completely ungrateful. Well, I guess she's, you know, she's found the dynamic that works. I guess she's realized she can kind of treat him like crap and he'll keep, you know, she'll keep her meal ticket. So why not just keep it going in all situations? It's the same, I mean, it's just what you were saying, just that it's mm. such a one-note kind of character. It must be like, it's like that in the script, I imagine, so it's not entirely her fault, uh, Colette Marchand's fault, but yeah, it's like every scene was, was John Huston just telling her, okay, now you're you're just irrationally angry with this man, and then action, and that was it. So, don't know. Yeah, they, they, should, have given, they should have given the development of the relationship a little bit more room. Mm-hmm. So it's like he picks her, he he meets her at night on the street, and and I have a feeling there she is a little bit more charming. He takes her upstairs. She is happy that she can take a bath, um, and then in the next scene, it seems like they are already settled in, and this dynamic between them that she is constantly spiteful and angry with him already is settled by this point. The, I think the character needed softening a bit um, to make it more of a you know sort of question. Does she actually have feelings for him? Is she actually worth a bit more? Um, But I think what would have made the film better for me is if they pushed more of the class issues, um, which I did find interesting that Toulouse the Trek actively spurns this upper class life um, he's been brought up in and you know, he has this monologue at one point that's this really staunch defence of the working class. And uh, when he's talking to, I think it's his brother or his peer or something. Um, and he says something like, we each have our escape. Yours is your dream of a bygone era. Uh, and mine's cognac. <laughs> and I just thought, yes. Um, I kind of wish that the film had explored that a little more because... He definitely is converging class-wise and, you know, sort of um, surrounding himself with people he 
you know he's not been brought up with and um i thought that was interesting like if the film had explored why he chose to do that but yeah yeah i have to say i was a little bit always more annoyed a little bit with him in these parts because yes he certainly is surrounding himself with a different group of people and in a different place that he grew up with but you get that he still has enough of money to afford a life that still works for him so yeah i mean yeah you still have this big apartment in the middle of paris you still can go to the moulin rouge every day and get drunk every day so it's not like money is a problem for you so don't complain too much what did you guys think of ferrer i thought he was pretty good Maybe also not too dimensional. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a very big fan of his Oscar win. I, that's personally one of my favorite Best Actor wins. Um, but from other performances I've seen of him, he can be very, maybe more stoic and two-dimensional in what he wants to express. That sometimes happens here. Um, I think the problems in the relationship between him and Marie are not only on her side but also he doesn't really explain why he is so fascinated with her so he also sometimes takes the easy way out um, but overall I thought he carried the movie quite well yeah I thought it was pretty good too because um, he I think this was his last nomination right um, mm-hmm. and he got he was kind of as many actors were kind of popular for a particular time was nominated for Joan of Arc and uh, Cyrano de Bergerac and then this and then never again but yeah I thought he was good I thought the um cosmetically it was fairly convincing as well for the time um I did read that uh it Ferrer was in a lot of pain with the uh, the knee supports he was wearing to make it you know look um four foot eight or whatever he's supposed to be uh, but yeah I thought he was thought he was good has uh, anybody seen Colette Marchand did anything else no I think she only made a couple of movies and I think at some point I think I read an article at some point that she essentially also disappeared and that there were a lot of people who were actually looking for her and nobody essentially knew where she was so I, I don't. Th- I think there's a lot, of very a lot unknown about her. Yeah. Well, there's a movie there. <laughs> I just want to say I think my favorite part of the movie was when we learned that the king of Serbia is walking around Paris and has business cards that just say "King of Serbia" on it. <laughs> <laughs> like any, he could be anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like that. I, you probably can't do that anymore as a king. Just kind of walk around anonymously handing out business cards um, and have people instantly believe that you are, in fact, the king of Serbia just because, oh, no, surely nobody else would have this business card. Yeah, no. <laughs> which, which gives no details. It just says king of Serbia. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, it was my favorite part. I also like that the actor who played the King of Serbia, he was the he was Count Capassi in My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, Theodore Bickel, right? Um, just yeah, just a tiny little cameo. Uh, Oscar nominee, just oh yeah, we'll just throw him in for three seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
But I mean, King of Serbia. It's not a bad role. Indeed. And also uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in the movie, albeit not together. Um, always a treat to see them pop up. All right. So next we're going to okay. talk about Terry Moore in Come Back Little Sheba. And once again, this was Terry Moore's only career nomination. Come Back Little Sheba is based on the Broadway play by William Inge, which ran for 190 performances, won two Tonys for Best Actor and Best Actress. Uh, for Shirley Booth, who um, also won the Oscar. Um, thoughts on how well this movie does as, as a stage adaptation? Um, so in my opinion, it actually does quite well, especially when you look at the Best Actress race at that year. You also have um, um, The Member of the Wedding, and it's quite interesting that The Member of the Wedding is mm -hmm. directed by Fred Zinnemann, who had directed movies before, while um, Kabeklin Sheba is directed by Daniel Mann, who hadn't directed a movie before at this point and was like Shirley Booth coming from Broadway. And The Member of the Wedding feels far more stagey than Kabeklin Sheba. Um, it's not, you, you sense that it, it is based on a stage play, but it doesn't feel too limited to one room or to unrealistically limited to one room like um, the bad seed where you constantly just have this one living room and you have characters entering and coming in like with stage cues um, so personally felt that Comeback Little Sheba did quite a good job, job in um, transferring to the screen yeah I, I was gonna I agree um, I think that I can imagine it on the stage in a kind of typical stage house where everything's just Every room is next to each other, so people can just move laterally. But I think they did a good job of taking that very limited space of a single house and making it seem more cinematic. Um, and yeah, like you say, not just having it be one character enters, one exits, one enters, one exits, and they were able to move around more. Um, and when, when it did occasionally go outside... Kind of like uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, who's kind of a, a nice kind of breather. Um, those scenes where you get out of the house, but then you go back to kind of give it that, again, that kind of cinema treatment. So yeah, I, I it didn't feel too much like a play. I know recently we talked about Long uh, Day's Journey into Night, and I was complaining about how stagey that one felt, but... That could have been because it was three hours long, but this one is, is a tight 90-odd minutes, so that definitely helped. Yeah, I think it also helps that the subject of Comeback Little Sheba is very much about people trapped, so you don't mind so mm. much that it's a lot of it's indoors and on one set, but I think, for me, the editing nomination is an interesting choice, uh, given that there are some really dodgy continuity problems in the last act where he's chasing her around the house. Um, there are some cuts that are they're far too quick and show Booth in positions she couldn't be in based on the last shot. So I, I don't know what the Academy was thinking with that nomination. Um, but overall, like, yeah, I thought it, it was, a, he did a good job. He did um, the Rose tattoo as well, right? After this. Daniel Mann. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, which again, I don't think that's too too stagey either. So he, I think he knew what he was doing. 
yeah, I think they, they just thought, oh, let's let's give Anna Magnani, Daniel Mann, and Bert Lancaster, and that will give her an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Bert Lancaster was better suited to this movie than the Rose Tattoo. I think he's pretty miscast in both of them. I I, I at least like him. I, I I mean, the Rose Tattoo, his performance is just so unhinged and bizarre. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on most of the time that I kind of love it. Um, but I do, I do agree that he's definitely, uh, miscast here. Um, he, yeah, I don't know. He, he, he never really feels right in the role as like an older middle-aged, uh, recovering alcoholic. He, he seems a little too, I don't know, power. He was only in his early thirties when he did this, right? So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't really. I think he. Yeah, I think he he just became 40 or something like this. So he said, at some point he said, well, he actually fits to the, to the age of the character um, as he was written, but Shirley Booth obviously was not 40. And I don't know, I, I think they they try, but for me, they never are believable as a couple. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they put on Burt Lancaster's eyes. There's some really strange eye makeup um, on him in this that, I, I guess it's designed to make him look older, but it just doesn't work. Um, maybe they were going for a mismatch because, I mean, this is about a couple that don't really love each other. Let's be honest. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. probably could have been better cast. Um, I think what I liked about it, I didn't like the movie as much this time as the first time I watched it, but. I like that it's got this underlying sexual frustration about it. Um, it kind of courses through the drama. And it feels pretty frank, like refreshingly frank about that issue for a film from this period. Because um, Doc clearly has this paternal relationship of sorts with Marie. But I think he also secretly wants to sleep with her. And it's it's that sexual frustration and Doc having to settle for this life and his youth being gone without him having a chance to have lived it to the full that that really comes through in the movie um, and the resentment there's this resentment to every element of their marriage and it it's present in more scenes and it's kind of sad and, and tough to take really you kind of wonder you know why are these people still together. Um, she, you know, she doesn't deserve this, but I can't help but feel sorry for him too. Yeah, definitely. But I, but I think if they had cast an actor who fit better to Shirley Booth, um, the relationship might have worked better. Even if you sense that he is not too happy with her and, and trapped in this life. Um, I think the problem is also that... Uh, messaging in the play and the movie is probably as subtle as a sledgehammer <laughs> so you have this lot you have you, you have the lost dog you have the lost use you have him the dog um, not the dog and um, dog so the, <laughs> the bird link is this character um with um the, the um, uh, marie um you have this whole <laughs> i don't know what what if you can call it this, this kind of women belong in the kitchen kind of messaging where she is constantly sleeping late and not taking care of his breakfast. And at the end, she's probably dressed. She painted the icebox. She made him breakfast. And now everything is better again. So 
I feel like the, there's, the movie is not perfect. It's more like an acting showcase. But this, this is it. But it is an acting showcase. And it, it gives a very good part to Shirley Booth. And for this, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. I think um, well, a lot, of, a lot of 50s and 60s uh, stage adaptations, you, I think, could be said that they're an acting showcase um, with a lot of other problematic elements to it like i mean for all my faults i found with long day's journey into night i couldn't find anything bad to say about um katherine hepburn's performance in it um because it's an acting showcase it's just that's what that's kind of what theater is right it's supposed to be um where actors can just go out and say yes this is how it's done so um i like that element of the good uh theater adaptations that hollywood made because they kept that element of just we're going to show you what acting's really, you know, what acting looks like. And I think that this film does that. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm glad that there was a time when they adapted these, all of these plays and, and basically made them immortal on the screen. I mean, today it would be like, oh, why, why are you doing a movie of this small little play? Let's have cast Shirley Booth in the Avengers instead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she could do a job in the Avengers. <laughs> yeah, she could definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I did, Yeah, I think the film could have st- struck a better balance between hinting and at the backstory and telling us the backstory. I agree, the messaging is is far too heavy handed. I don't think the lost dog um, metaphor works. Honestly, um, I don't like the title of the movie because there's this scene like early on where we learn everything basically that's happened in one scene, like Lola getting pregnant, Doc having to marry her, losing the baby. Um, she can't have any more children. And this is all revealed in like one minute, the space of a minute. And it can't help but feel functional. It doesn't feel natural. Um it doesn't feel like a natural extension of what the characters are thinking and feeling. It's you, you just sense the script or the play um, saying, okay, we need the audience to know this information. Let's have it out in one scene done. But what did you guys think of the last act? Is, did that come as a shock? I mean, not really as a shock. I suppose when you watch the movie, you expect him to get drunk again at some point. You probably, I suppose that audiences in 1952 might have been shocked to see him going after her with the knife. Probably was not too common to see this in movies. I think in the play, he's running after her with an axe. So, I don't know, they apparently saw for the movie and a knife was maybe not so bad (laughs) or was less, was was less problematic than an axe. Um, but yeah, it, it felt, I felt in the, in the end, it kind of came, I, I'm not sure if it's the same in the play. I, I, I read somewhere that the play ends a little bit more hopeless. So the movie, it feels a little bit too neat how everything comes together. As I said, she has her hair done. She's wearing a nice dress. She's making breakfast. He comes back. They are happy together. Marie, Marie is out of the house. Somehow they are back. And now it kind of leaves on a positive note and it, it feels a little bit forced. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the scene on the phone where um, Lola's on the phone to her parents just killed me, honestly. Um, yeah. Like, I think you get to that scene and it's kind of like, sorry, ladies, thank you for taking part. You're not going to beat that, basically, this year. Um, I think just in terms of Shirley Booth, her performance is like one of the loneliest I've ever seen. I think she's tremendous um, and completely deserved the Oscar. But because at, at the end, I did quite like the last act because I thought it went further than it could have done, even though you, you're saying it, it was an axe originally. Um, so that, that is a bit tamer, but you kind of, you expect him to get drunk, but you don't expect him to be dangerous. And I think that that forces you to reconsider her position a little bit as saying, you know, it makes you wonder what he might have done in the past that could have even been worse than that. Um, but yeah, when she calls her parents, I was just devastated by that. I thought thought she was amazing in that scene. Yeah, I think that the movie essentially exists to give Shirley Booth this part and and to, to give an actress a great role. I mean, and as you said, the play also won a Tony for Best Leading Actor, so it's obvious. the play is obviously designed as a showcase for two performers, but in the movie it's really just a showcase for one person, which may might lead us to <laughs> the fact that there is also another Oscar-nominated performer in the ensemble. Yeah, and actually Terry Moore, just to kick off with Terry Moore, she's actually the fourth earliest acting nominee still with us. Um, after Anne Blythe, Nancy Olsen, and Lee Grant. Mm. Oh, yeah. oh wow! Have, have to be honest, did not know that. <laughs> I liked Terry Moore. Um, I don't think it's a great performance, but um, I like how free spirited she is in the role. Um, I think she makes it mm. known that Marie, you know, knows she has the power to manipulate people, particularly men. Um, and the climax of her relationship with Turk surprised me in how ugly and, you know, that ended, to be honest. Um, and I think, it, you know, the way that that scene unfolded sort of exposed, you know, Marie, that Marie's, you know, forwardness is a bit of an act and um, she's maybe not as um, loose as the impression she gives off but I thought Mo did well with what she had to work with um, yeah me too I, I don't think that you go out of uh, come back little Sheba and probably think or talk about Terry Moore too much but she brings something to the role that is needed for the movie I think she balances the bigger acting showcases especially Booth and to a certain extent Burt Lancaster who are more stylized so her, her work feels a bit more natural and I like how she's just very believable as this young college girl and that she that you believe that she actually likes both of them so that she doesn't secretly think, oh, these two old annoying people. But she feels that, that she really cares for them. She enjoys being around them. She enjoys living in this house. Um, she just brings something to the movie that is that balances the more serious aspects of um, Booth and Lancaster's relationship. 
Yeah, I also thought uh, Terry Moore was good. Um, maybe not amazing, but I I saw Marie as maybe too. I I saw her as innocent, like way too innocent almost. Um, and like, how could she not pick up on some of the vibes that um, Doc and Turk were giving off? And I didn't really see her as like manipulating people so much as just kind of not noticing what their intentions were. Um, and I thought that was, I thought that was good, but also a little too much. She was a little too naive, I think, at some points. Um, just a little too, oh, gee whiz, everything's great, and this house is amazing, and Turk's so cool. Um, so that, that part got on my nerves a little bit, but then the, the scene where she gets rid of Turk in, in the bedroom is also pretty dark and pretty, um, a pretty good climax, I think, to that relationship. And it was probably her best, my the, my favorite scene of hers in the movie, at least. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought she was a good like you know, spark to to get the plot going. Marie as a character. Yeah, I, I liked how she how she portrayed the relationship to Turk. So because she has this not fiance but this more steady boyfriend Bruce, whom she constantly writes those letters and feels with Turk, she's just enjoying a more probably dangerous and more a more sexual um is the relationship is not sexual but there obviously a lot is implied and she just wants to try this out and see how far she can go and maybe just test this before she is willing to settle down before she then notices how far she got into it and yeah and, and i also like her big scene at, at uh, when she kicks him out and she has some really good close-ups and makes the scene suddenly about her. And for the first time, you really feel that the character of Marie is somehow central, um, which kind of makes it sad that at the end, um, she's dropped so unceremoniously from the plot. I would have liked if she had come back for a quick hello. Yeah, or, or been involved in that late drama where Doc's drunk. It's, it does feel like, oh, you've served your purpose. See you later. Um, I thought... For all the world, Marie was going to be, maybe Doc would have been lusting after her or something, or she would walk in on them, or him with the knife, or it felt like there was room for her to be part of that. Yeah, I mean, they have the, the neighbor coming over, it could have been Marie as well, but I don't know, maybe they probably, yeah, didn't really have any purpose for the character anymore. So next, um, we have Thelma Ritter in With a Song in My Heart. And this was Thelma Ritter's third of six nominations, all for supporting actress, all within a 12-year period where it seemed like she could do no wrong in Hollywood. But for all that, she didn't win an Oscar. She's still an Oscar bridesmaid. Um, how do we feel about With a Song in My Heart? Five nominations for this one. Uh, it's not... Um... I think the movie suffers a little bit, especially because you tend to come, when you're on a watch junkie, you tend to compare it to Sing in the Rain because it won a Golden Globe over Sing in the Rain. It won this musical adaptation score Oscar over Sing in the Rain. Um, you probably need to have been there since Jane Froman was a big celebrity at the time. And personally, I never heard of her before I saw with a song in my heart. So I'm not sure if this is if it's different in other countries. Um, but... I had neither. 
Okay, that's good to know. It seems that the movie just wanted to build a kind of monument to her and honor her life and her story and her voice, which it probably does. And at the time, I would compare it maybe a little bit to The Greatest Show on Earth in the same year. So for a lot of people who couldn't go to this gigantic circus that feels like 10 circuses put into one, so they had this big, they could see it on the screen instead. And so if you didn't, were never able to see Jane Froman in person, you got Jane Froman singing and Susan Hayward acting her. Probably came as close as you wanted and gave you the opportunity to see her. And this is nice. But as a movie, it's not too great. It, I personally feel despite the fact that it's based on a very tumultuous life, there is hardly any plot. And the musical numbers are also the problem with the musical numbers is that they are not musical numbers but it's just susan hayward standing in front of a microphone and lip syncing for five minutes a song that has no relation to the plot and this always brings the movie to a halt and yeah not a not a big fan of the movie yeah i i agree i mean i mean i hadn't heard of jane froman either um before and i had to look up to see that she was even real um and she was, and, you know, definite tragedy that uh, happened to her, and but she bounced back and everything. But the movie, yeah, I found it very paint-by-numbers biopic. Like, everything happens exactly where you expect it to in a standard screenplay. You have all the characters you expect in a standard screenplay. And, yeah, just the the use of the songs, pretty much like you are saying, to introduce Jane Froman, and also, I guess, to sell... Uh, a Jane Froman's Greatest Hits soundtrack record because, yeah, every five minutes or ten minutes it just grinds to a halt and she sings and it's not even her singing, um, which... It isn't, it isn't Susan Hayward. No, it's actually <laughs> no, Jane Froman. No, it's Jane Froman. <laughs> oh, because I didn't like the voice. I thought it was Susan Hayward's, but I, whoever's voice it was, I didn't like the voice. Yeah, it, Jane Froman, uh, who was involved, heavily involved in the scene, like she was a technical advisor on the film and was, yeah, uh, did haul her own characters singing and, and Susan Hayward just mouthed along to it. Um, I don't know if Susan Hayward could actually sing. Um, don't remember if I've ever heard her actually sing, but no, it's Jane Froman. Um, so yeah, just... S Susan Hayward... Su just Su Susan Hayward sings in um, I Cry Tomorrow that, that she does her own singing. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, okay. that's why I thought she she would have been singing in this, but oh dear. Okay. Well, I don't know if I, I don't know if she even had the option maybe before she was even involved. Maybe it was always going to be, let's make a movie about Jane Froman and, and she's right here, so she may as well sing. But yeah, not a, not a big fan of the movie overall for all those reasons. Um, it's kind of a drag. Yeah, I... I think in general, I don't like Jane Froman's voice, sorry. Um, in general, the soundtrack was very tame, like Blue Moon, T for Two, God Bless America. Um, which, I mean, I guess this is before rock and roll. Um, <laughs> but it's not as if the music itself is contributing to a good experience. Um, mm -hmm. Which, for a film called With a Song in My Heart, is probably not a good sign. And... There's a lot of music. It's padded with songs in the first half. And at the end, there's like five in a row. Um, and at that point, the patriotism does become a bit sickeningly over the top. Um, 
Although I did like the before and after of the soldier who joins her on stage. I did quite like that as a plot device. Um, but yeah, other than that... It's Robert Wagner. Unexpected to see him, yeah. Yeah, he looked mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah, I was also surprised. <laughs> but other than that, it's, it's, yeah, Chris, you're right. It's extremely standard biopic fare. Um, and it's got this a star is born model that every biopic about a successful woman seems to have taken on board where the woman succeeds and her emasculated husband drinks himself into depression because he feels inferior. And that's never been a fascinating conflict to me. Um, and, you know, films about male musicians or male successful males don't afford the wives as much of a voice, as much compassion when it's about men. So I don't, you know, Gary Merrill um, being, you know, depressed was not exactly an interesting story beat for me. Um and the fact that you've even got him doing most of the narration um, feels a bit weird. I didn't understand why we kept hearing his voiceover. Yeah, it's, uh, me neither. Yeah, as I said, there's really not too much plot in there. She So basically there, there's one love story, then there's another love story, there's this accident, and essentially that's it. It's a little bit thinned down. The interesting thing is that Jane Froman herself mostly wanted a movie based on her life because after her accident and after she had all this pain in her legs she became addicted to painkillers and she wanted this to be shown in the movie as a as a kind of a sign of hope that she was able to overcome this addiction and she wanted basically to give hope to people in the same situation but obviously um hollywood would say oh no 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 we don't we don't want this you have to be perfect. Yeah, and a, an addiction to painkillers can't be cured by one hard love Thelma Ritter speech. So couldn't couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, Thelma wouldn't have had any of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, the film became much more interesting after the plane crash. Um, you know, we don't see a whole lot of the immediate aftermath of the crash. I think more could have been done there. Um, it kind of just skips forward to where Jane, John and Clancy have supposedly been together for a few days. And um, I think it's a credit to the actors that you can definitely feel the bond between them, the three of them at that point. And Jane and Clancy's bond carries forward to the end and um, Clancy's reaction to the scene in which Jane confesses her love to John and, you know, says, what am I going to do about Don? Um, Which I think might be Hayward's best scene, actually. I think she's great in that scene. And uh, Thelma Ritter tears up in that moment and and then kind of retreats back into comedy and says, well, you need to blow your nose. Um, And it's the first moment where I thought, okay. I can really feel that these two actresses are getting the best out of each other with these two performances. And I liked Haywood a lot more this time around. And I think that Haywood and Ritter are kind of working in tandem in this, which I liked. I actually 
liked Hayward's performance less over time. I think because when I watched the movie the first time, like ages ago, I was more impressed with all her musical numbers and the dramatic story. But when you revisit it, you find out how thin and non-consequential everything really is. Um, but I agree that the movie becomes better after the plane crash. And it's probably like the halfway mark of the movie. And you ha- and Sam Rita is the kind of actress and Clancy is the kind of character that is supposed to come in and breathe some fresh air into this and give it a new, new energy and Samarita is obviously the actress to do so um, Clancy does not really have an arc as a character or any depth as a character if we're honest we don't know anything about her there is no development in her but it still is a very successful performance she brings a lot of energy in it she is a co- like a comic relief she has many one-liners and her being Samaritan, she can obviously toss them out like nobody else but she also adds as as you said this kind of feeling that the relationship between her and um, Jane Froman goes very deep that they have been together for a long time and that they have a very clear understanding of each other and can communicate a lot without words and this is what I liked very much and she, Samarita is brings the kind of she brings Samarita brings Samarita to this movie and this is always a good thing. Yeah, it becomes about the women, doesn't it? It becomes about these two women in a way. I agree. It would have been nice if if Clancy had had her own sort of personal elements. Um, but yeah, I think you know it's it's safe to say that Thelma's nominated performances don't have a huge amount of variety um you know she had a she had a kind of a shtick but what she did with comedy was was one of a kind um i think pick up on south street is my favorite of hers um but this is maybe the second most emotional i've seen of hers um i've not seen birdman of alcatraz but i thought she um delivered the speech really well where she tells Jane to keep fighting and um, and then of course in the next scene there's a voiceover of her saying I think that bit of ham acting did the trick which is like <laughs> almost poking fun at your own performance um, but yeah I thought there was like an emotional outlet to Clancy that, that really worked for the film and I thought Rita was, was great yeah and I also liked how she still created a character here uh, especially like at the end when I don't know I think when the soldiers give her some kind of message and it says bon voyage and she she pronounces it bon voyage which somehow fits so perfectly to the character um do you think Thelma should have won an Oscar at any point I mean I would I would have loved to see her (laughs) I I, I would have loved to see her win an Oscar at some point and I know that everybody always goes to pick up on South Street as her as an easy win for her. And I would not have been mad if she had won for this. But I have to also be honest, I'm a big fan of Donna Reed and From Here to Eternity. So it is difficult to find a place where you can give her a win, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I also really like Donna Reed in that, so I can't really... I mean, I love Thelma Ritter and Pick Up on South Street too, but I don't think I'd give it to her over her. I have not seen Pillow Talk, um, so I can't speak for that one. Yeah, I know. 
Um, but yeah, she, she, she always seemed to be up against some pretty stiff competition. Um, we, we talked about all about Eve in the last episode. And I, I mean, I, as much as I like her in that, I don't think I'd give it to her over Josephine Hull. Uh, so yeah, it's tough to think of her as going over six, but I mean, when you look at who she lost to some, somehow it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take the Oscars away from them. Kim Hunter, Paddy Duke. I know with Paddy Duke, everybody, of course, today says Angela Lansbury, which also makes sense. But Paddy Duke is actually my my favorite Oscar winner in that category. She's probably not supporting, but um, I'm not the one who gave her the win in that category, so I have to stick with what I have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we talked about that recently too, and we. I mean, I, I still like Patty Duke as the winner as well, even though she's arguably lead. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say none of us are going to be rushing out to buy Jane Froman's greatest hits. <laughs> I I, ha- I actually read her biography. Yep. I actually read her biography for my Susan Hayward video. So and she did lead an interesting life. So there is a lot more to her than um, than what the movie tells. And uh, yeah, it, I'm. I do respect what she was able to do, but I'm also also like you. I'm not the biggest fan of her singing. It's probably more like the singing of a bygone era. And I, I can't imagine when you listen to radio or see her doing a concert, then it's a good voice, obviously. But I don't think it's the kind of voice that works in a movie musical. For this, it, it lacks character. It's like... It's interesting, it's a little bit like uh, Come Back Little Sheba when we learn with a song in my heart that what normal women do is dance and go shopping, (laughs) which which I found quite comical when when, when Susan cries that she will lose her leg and never will be able to do anything that a normal woman does, normal woman does, like dance and go shopping. (laughs) Cook a dinner, go go in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) uh right so um all of the nominees we've spoken about today they all lost to gloria graham in the bad and the beautiful and this is gloria graham's second and final nomination only win she was previously nominated in this category for crossfire six nominations for the bad and the beautiful it won five oscars um which was the most um, of this year and the most any film has won without a Best Picture nomination. And it's kind of wild that that record still stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until until last year was also a record for not nominated for Best Director, but then Dune uh, won six last year without a director nomination, so that one fell. But I I doubt we'll see that this record probably locked in now that the Best Picture field's been expanded to 10 movies. We probably won't see a movie win five or six without mm. a picture nomination anymore. I mean, it is kind of remarkable that the movie did not receive a Best Picture nomination since it is such a Hollywood story, but probably also too critical of Hollywood to maybe to for some Academy members. Yeah, it's kind of interesting we're talking about this in the same category, the same show as Singing in the Rain, which uh, they're pretty on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to, uh, you know, taking the piss out of Hollywood. This one goes a much darker route. Yeah, it's definitely a downbeat, a 
downbeat version of Hollywood we're seeing here, um, where people are screwing each other over and um, tormented by their past and industry pressures. And I think, you know, given the themes that the bad and the beautiful discuss discusses, um, it was far less engaging than I expected it to be. Um, I think it might have helped to have a relatable character as a through line um, for all of the stories, you know, as well as an unrelatable, an, un an unrelatable one. Um, rather than give us this a letter to three wives style triptych of stories that, you know, each back up this idea of how much of a monster Kirk Douglas is. I think, you know, it didn't have this perspective that could ground us in, in this idea of betrayal um, that really, you know, meant something to me anyway. Um, the only story that fully worked for me was the one with Georgia, Lana Turner. I think if they had fleshed out more within that story, that could have formed the basis of the whole movie and they needn't have bothered with the first and third story. So I, I kind of think they missed a trick. I found the concept of the three different stories quite interesting, but I'm also a sucker for these kind of Hollywood backstage movies. I mean, the same year we also have The Star, which is a horrible movie, but still incredibly entertaining. And The Bad and the Beautiful is also... In the, I mean, when, when you have a movie scene where there are a lot of Oscars standing around and they are talking about making movies, I don't know, that's kind of my thing. But I agree that the stories uh, succeed on different levels. And what's probably difficult is that Jonathan is quite an asshole when we get down to it. and But somehow the movie constantly tells us that he is a bad person, but also wants us to be on his side. And never never really makes up his mind about where we should be, which makes it a little bit difficult. I mean, he is a terrible person. He, in the third act, when he basically tells the writer, hey, you're better off with now that your wife is dead. I mean, what, what a jerk. And... <laughs> <laughs> and it's... Yeah, and he is a terrible person. But at the same time, this movie is supposed to be this big love letter to producers a produ because producer he is a director the producer is the writer the producer is the casting director the producer is a mo is a god who does everything and everybody else who is involved in making a movie is essentially a prop and just has to do what the producer says and it's yeah there, there are a lot of problems with it but it still for me is entertaining and i somehow like the concept of the three different backstories Yeah, it had it had a very Citizen Kane-y feel to it in that, you know, we never actually see Jonathan Shields himself. We just see him through their flashbacks, you know, uh, and right down to like the creepy abandoned house with the gate and everything. You know, it's just straight out of Citizen Kane. Um, but I thought it was interesting that, yeah, um, every at the end of every story, we keep coming back to Walter Pigeon uh, kind of sarcastically laying into them about oh yeah he sure ruined you huh left you with two oscars and a thriving career and blah 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 but it's like he keeps moving the goalposts right none of them argued that jonathan shields ruined them they just don't want to work with him because he's an asshole 
And yeah. Walter Pigeon just keeps ignoring that and acting like they're all acting aggrieved when they're not. They just don't want to work with somebody who screwed them over, um, which, you know, is kind of a dick move on his part. But I guess it works in the end, right? Because they all end up seduced by by Shields again. Yeah. And I mean, it's also different for every character. I mean that he says to the director guy, essentially, oh, by screwing you over and not letting you direct this one movie, you had to pull yourself up and succeeded. And you only did that because Jonathan treated you like an, like, like, um, like a piece of dirt, which I think, re can you really say he was successful because of him? And I mean, Mr. Mr. Writer, you can say, I mean, the writer has a bit, pretty big reason to be upset with Jonathan, and I don't think that you can say, okay, time passes, that's fine now. And with, La and with Lana Turner's character, I find it a little bit um, regretful that her only reason is that she is basically in love with him and he didn't, he wasn't in love with her. So for the woman, it's just love. For the man, it's more, it has bigger reasons. And for her, it's just about love. I think the writer as well, he'd already written a bestseller anyway, so he didn't really need his help. Um, he would have been all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, the the other two got thriving careers and he just lost his wife. Um, yeah, but yeah, but you forget the, the writer was able now to write more fast now that his wife was dead. So that's good. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And also she was dreadful, Silver wasn't lining. she? I just <laughs> I think it might be one of the few times I've been pleased that someone dies in a plane crash in a movie um, <laughs> but it does strange I remember being happy when characters in Cavalcade died on the Titanic <laughs> strange parallels with um, Jacqueline Suzanne's Once Is Not Enough right with um, Kirk Douglas as this asshole movie producer in plane crashes um, mm. maybe that's what drew him to, to the role <laughs> uh, I think I think it's a bit self-serious I, I don't think it realises how trashy it is um, dramatically I did like the ending where they crowd round the phone because of what it says about people in Hollywood you know always wanting to chase the next success that was kind of a tongue-in-cheek moment um, and I think the movie could have done with a bit more comedy honestly um, but yeah, I agree. It, it it kind of excuses his behavior, and you know, implies that they should forgive him at the end. And I don't understand why they would. But yeah, also because he, um, the Walter Pitchin character, constantly tells us how successful they all are. So I don't know why they need to work with Jonathan, even from a business point of view. Is it? Uh, it's sort of an implication that they should repay him. Isn't it like um, oh, okay. now he's uh, he's yeah. managed to get himself bankrupt, which is his own fault, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I need to say something about Lana Turner because when we talked about Peyton Place, I pretty much eviscerated her. Um, and also, when I was on Kevin Jacobson's podcast, I really laid into her as well. Um, but I think here she is really good in this role. I love her vulnerability. Um, and I read that Vincente Minnelli spent a lot of time on her and building up her confidence and working with her. And I think the results are clear to see. I think she's gives the best performance in the film. 
I'm also not a big Lana Turner fan, um, but, I, but I admire her for, for taking this role because essentially what they are saying about her character is she cannot act, but you also cannot look away, is essentially Lana Turner. And I'm not sure if she saw it the same way. Um, but I also much enjoy her in this movie. And I mean, that's the most unhinged car driving scene I have ever seen in my life. And I... <laughs> For as ridiculous as it is, I have to give her credit for going all the way. <laughs> so I can't I can imagine a lot of I can't imagine a lot of actresses not being able to pull that off. <laughs> yeah, I was watching this movie um, the other day, and and then uh, my wife happened to come in the room just at that moment, and she just gives me this look like, "What the hell are you watching?" I'm like it's it's not. <laughs> it's not all like this. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that scene too. I'd watched this movie years ago, but um, I forgot about that. And it is quite a quite a sequence. So, what about Gloria Graham? Because uh, so Gloria Graham's screen time's nine minutes and thirty two seconds, which was the shortest ever to have won an Oscar until Beatrice Strait won for Network. Um. How much does she get to do in this? Uh, show off a flawless southern accent. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's very sarcastic there. So, yeah. Um, she, absolutely awful. Every time she opens her mouth, it's like, I do declare, James Lee. It's like, come on. I mean. You have a very naughty mind. <laughs> yeah. Street, you know. S- Vivian Lee had done Streetcar at, at this point and Gone with the Wind. She could have watched either of those to see how to do a Southern <laughs> accent. Um, I don't know what was going on with this or if, if she had any coaching on how to do this accent at all, but it's, yeah, absolute train wreck of an accent. And, yeah, her... her okay, and her character has nothing to offer, really, other than to be annoying and die. I mean, the thing is, I like Gloria Graham, and I, I'm glad that she has an Oscar, but yeah, this this is a big bowl of nothing. Um, and I, I, I like that her appearance is brings, like a lot of the other nominees, brings some energy into this movie, because you had the first story, which is kind of the introduction, and you had the second story, which is probably the best one, and the third story, which focuses on the writer, might be the least interesting one for the audience because the writer is not as interesting maybe as the leading actress of the movie. And so she is kind of a comic relief, but only so far a comic relief for how much you can tolerate her, which is the question. I think that really depends on on how you take her character. Um, I did read some newspaper articles from the time and there was a lot of Gloria Graham steals this movie, and Gloria Graham is the best part of this movie. So I don't know where I don't know where this I don't know where this came from, but I, but apparently there was a lot of people did enjoy her work back then. But I would say that probably only because she also had all these other performances in the same year. So I will not even pretend that she won this for the Bad and the Beautiful. Um, she won this just for her, a very successful year in Hollywood. Um, she was better the same year. She was far better in Sudden Fear. She was also better in The Greatest Show on Earth. Um, but if we go back to The Bad and the Beautiful, I like that she is a comic relief. Um, 
she has nice chemistry with the actor who plays her husband. For some reason, you can believe that he is in love with her, even though she, she is very annoying. But yeah, there, there, there is nothing to this role. She comes and she goes and it doesn't leave a single kind of impact. The moment she's gone, she's gone and you don't even think about her anymore. Yeah, I feel bad because I like her in general. In Crossfire, I think she's great. She's wonderful in, in A Lonely Place with Bogart. Um, but yeah, I I couldn't get on board with this. I feel like she's it's like <laughs> halfway between Scarlett O'Hara and Blanche Dubois um, with the inability to do the accent. So I don't know. I mean, she does have this kind of ambition and hunger, um, you know, that she manages to bring out in Rosemary. Um, but I I did keep wondering why her character was in the film. It's very, very random. The romance is like, you know, blink and you'll miss it. It was just rushed. Um, so, yeah, in the greater sense of the, the, the picture, I don't know how the character could ever feel properly developed. Um, she makes an okay attempt, but I never saw Rosemary as a real person. Just seemed like a caricature. Yeah, I mean, I think for a supporting performer to be successful, they, in my opinion, either need to be integrated into the plot in some way or they just need to be a scene stealer. And Gloria Graham is somehow neither. As you said, she isn't relevant to the plot, but she also, it's not like you see her and you think, oh, she was so wonderful. I'm so glad she was in there. She's just there without any real reason. And and I don't want to put the, the small screen time against her because you can do a lot with 10 minutes of screen time. And I mean, my, my, my favorite Best Supporting Actress nominee of 1959 is Hermione Badley in Room at the Top, who is in the movie for like two minutes. And so you, you can do a lot, but she doesn't, to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if we go back to the, the screen time, for and for how big a, an impression you can make, I personally think that um, I just have to check her name, uh, Elaine Stewart. She appears in the second storyline. She's this uh, more sarcastic actress who the Kirk Douglas character is having an affair with, and at the end she says to Lana Turner's character, "I saw your movie. I thought you were swell." <laughs> and she's in this movie, and she's in this movie for like one minute, and I never forgot this performance, and I think she's awesome. Well, oh, what about the five Oscars? Well, I mean, the other four, I think, uh, are arguably earned. I mean, it has a good screenplay, um, certainly compared to High Noon and The Quiet Man. Um, and you can't fault its uh, technical. I mean, it looks great. The costumes are great. So I think the other four are okay. Yeah, I'm also on board with them. And to be honest, I would have been fine with Kirk Douglas winning. Yeah, no, me too. Yeah, he's great. Maybe he nearly did, judging by the the five Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose suppose Gary Cooper pretty much had this in the back, but would not would have had to complain about a Kirk Douglas victory here. Yeah, I'm actually not a big fan of Gary Cooper or High Noon, so I would be more than happy to Kirk Douglas to have won. It's probably just as well we didn't have to talk about High Noon because I love it. So, 
I thought I loved it, then I watched it again and thought it was a bit, uh, a bit fascist. But no, maybe we'll get to that in a later episode. <laughs> we can still do, I mean, we can almost do Best Picture, although now we talked about Moulin Rouge, mm. so I guess we can't. I wouldn't want to do that anyway, sit through the greatest show on earth again. Uh, but Okay, um, so we've got some listener questions um, this episode. First is from Andrew, who asks, where do you rank this among the Oscar-nominated Thelma Ritter turns you've seen? So, I don't remember Birdman of Alcatraz, and I also don't remember um, the mating season too well. I think she was a, more a lead in that one, as anyway. I would probably... Those I have seen, I would... Um, pick up on South Street probably is number one. Pillow Talk is number two. I know she has a just small role in that, but I, I, I like Pillow Talk. It's a guilty pleasure, and I think her drunk maid is hilarious. Um, then probably All About Eve, number three. And With a Song in My Heart, number four, but not meant disrespectfully to With a Song in My Heart. It's a, Samarita is very a very consistent performer who's always good, so it's difficult to rank her work. It really depends more on the role she has. Yeah, I think I I would my ranking would be pretty much the same order. Although I've not seen the mating season, and I already mentioned I hadn't seen Pillow Talk, but yeah, pretty much same order for me as well. I definitely have pick up on South Street first, and then I thought she was great in the mating season. Uh, but lead, I agree. But um, I'd probably have them two at the top, and then maybe with a song in my heart. Miles uh, says, Gloria Graham wins, but for the wrong movie. Do you think her appearance in something more Tony, like The Bad and the Beautiful, helped her win? Yeah, definitely. What does more Tony win mean? Does that mean more? I would I would suppose more prestige, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, I definitely... I'm, I mean, she did um, Sudden Fear and she did uh, The Greatest Show on Earth. I think she did a Force movie. I don't remember what the title of that one was. Um, I think she's great in Sudden Fear. If she had one for that, I would be much more forgiving. Um, but it's just that The Bad and the Beautiful is the big Oscar prestige project. And I think in, in Inside Oscar, I read that the, the studio behind The Bad and the Beautiful was the one that did the acting campaign for her. So all the attention was on that performance, but it, I think it was generally generally agreed on that it was just for her successful year in movies, like with Joven Fleet a couple of years later. Yeah, and I think obviously this particular movie was very popular, clearly. Um, but yeah, a nomination for Sudden Fear would have been far more deserved. She's really great in that. And it did get two acting nominations, so it was on the radar. But as I said, apparently people also really liked Gloria Graham in The Bad and the Beautiful back then. For some reason. <laughs> uh, David asks, How in the world was Gloria Graham chosen over Gene Hagen? Especially when the former had such a nothing part. What were the voters on? Which... <laughs> well, ag ag again, they, again, they had just... They had just seen. I mean, if you if you're an Oscar voter, you see you see Gloria Graham when you vote for Best Picture. You see Gloria Graham when you vote for Best Actress, and you see Gloria Graham when you watch The Bad and the Beautiful. So yeah. Yeah, and I think there's several reasons why 
Academy voters can line up behind a particular winner. Um, like lots of people will have worked with Gloria Graham by the time 1953 came around. Industry popularity plays a part. Um, and then also the the um, body of work that we've mentioned. But what about the fate, the fate of the character? Does that help? I, th- I think dying always helps your Oscar chances, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you like her character and are sorry that she is gone, then probably if you are more like us and <laughs> are happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why did Gloria Graham win this Oscar, which we've kind of already talked about? Was it close? What do we think about the race? I mean, it's always difficult to comment on these older races with the lack of precursors and stuff like this. The only thing I always look to is that they had these um, daily variety, did this Oscar poll for a couple of years in those time where they polled like 20% of Academy members for the win. And they also predicted a win for Gloria Graham. So I'm not sure if it was close, but she was the favorite. And we know that that can be wrong. Um, ask Rosalind Russell. Yeah. But I think, you know, Graham obviously must have been the favorite at the time. I... I wouldn't think by much, to be honest. Like, maybe it could have been a 2007 situation um, where everyone gets a fair amount of votes. I don't know. Like, I don't see it being, like, a, you know, a massive runaway. But to be honest, I also don't know who would gather the enthusiasm for the runner-up. Well, five nominations for With a Song in My Heart, so... That indicates popularity. Third nomination in a row for Thelma. Yeah, probably, probably Thelma. Yeah, but I think where the song in my heart was seen as such a Susan Hayward showcase, a little bit like "Come Back, Little Sheba" was a Shirley Booth showcase. So yeah. I just I could imagine that the people who didn't vote for Gloria Graham were very much, the, the votes were very much spread out. I'm not sure if there was really a consensual second choice. So what about snubs this year? We, we spoke about High Noon. I, I mean, Katie Gerardo, um, I think was expected to get a nomination. Yeah, yeah, her, her, her obviously... I'm not. I'm not sure if she was if she was snubbed because they didn't nominate her, or if she was campaigned as a lead. I I don't know. Um, I think it was the lead, the lead campaign. I think everyone was registered in lead by mistake for that. Um, yeah, I mean, if we can say, uh, Gloria Graham would have much rather seen her nominated for sudden fear. Um. What about Ethel Waters? Yeah, I just want to say, I know I know she was campaigned as supporting. I personally also see her more as a lead. But I think she was campaigned as support. Oh, was she campaigned as leading? I don't... I think she was predicted as a leading nominee at some point, but I think the campaign might actually have been for supporting, so there might have just been confusion. Um, but... Um, she definitely should have been nominated for an Oscar. She sh- should have been nominated in lead if they... If they wanted to nominate her in supporting, I would have accepted this as well because she was just so amazing. Would um, Maureen O'Hara be a supporting possibility or was she lead in The Quiet Man? I think she'd be lead, wouldn't she? I, I don't remember her screen time, but I suppose as a but I suppose she's more seen as a leading actress. 
So I don't think they would campaign her in supporting. And Edith Evans uh, is great and the importance of being earnest, but I don't know if that was going to happen. Yeah, pro- probably not. <laughs> I think that the five nominees are very representative just of what the Academy liked to honor with, um, for some strange reason, I would say Gene Hagen is probably the most not traditional nomination of the of the five just that her that she is not her movie was probably the least was the least favorite with the academy <laughs> um so wider observations on 1952 this is the last year in which the best picture winner won just two oscars until spotlight happened um in 2016 thoughts on why the greatest show on earth won I think maybe they it was like they thought it might be their last chance to uh, honor Cecil B. DeMille Um, they didn't know he had Ten Commandments in him a few years later which uh, wouldn't have won Best Picture in my ballot either but it's better than this Um, and maybe yeah so maybe this one um, they just thought well you know it's Cecil B. DeMille He's, he's important uh, and he should he should have an Oscar. One of his films should win Best Picture. So how about this one? <laughs> it's literally called the Greatest Show on Earth. No one will check that. And yeah, we'll and I think High Noon might have been too controversial for some. It's the kind of political message you want to send. I mean, they could have gone with The Quiet Man if they gave it Best Director. Um, but maybe. I mean, I don't know how many people have worked, probably everyone in Hollywood has worked with Cecil B. DeMille at some point, and The Greatest Show on Earth was such a big movie, I, uh, I assume that a lot of people were involved with it, and maybe just thought, oh, why not, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when you when you watch the, the, the clip of it winning, I mean, even Mary Pickford looks like, what? When she's announcing it. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, the reviews were not kind, were they? Uh, even at the time. Um, no, I don't think... Uh, yeah, I don't think it was seen as really as an... Yeah, yeah, it was a big moneymaker, but I don't think it was seen as an Oscar movie, even at the time. Yeah. Maybe he called in a few favours. <laughs> um, we've also got John Ford winning uh, a fourth Oscar for Best Director, which set a record for, for most wins in this category that still stands. Yeah, but it's funny that only one of those four movies was a Best Picture winner. It's a strange anomaly in his in his achievements. I don't think we have a living director who's going to get three, much less four. Um, or or is... Yeah, is it possible Spielberg? Uh, is he a frontrunner this year, maybe? I haven't seen the Fablemans yet, so I don't really know. Inyaritu's got a chance. I mean, Ang Lee already has two director wins for no Best Picture winner, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, could be. I think Weiler's record is safe. We've got Shirley Booth was the last person born in the 19th century to win an Oscar um, and the first woman in her 50s to win Best Actress. But it's always important to remember that um, that she pretended to be still in her 40s. Did she? Yeah. 
I think she made herself she made herself a good ten years younger than she was. <laughs> I thought that was a misprint. I read that she was forty three somewhere, and I thought they must have got that wrong. And she's actually fifty three. No, no, she she tried she she actually she tried to, to she did make herself younger. Um, I wanted to mention Five Fingers, which is this really wonderful crime drama from nineteen fifty two from Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who was nominated again. Um, so I think that should have gotten more nominations, especially for James Mason, best actor. He's brilliant in it. Any favourites from 1952 for you guys? Judy Holiday did The Marrying Kind that year. She was really great in that. I recommend this to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people people keep recommending me Judy Holiday movies. They say this is the one <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna bring you into the fold. Uh, so maybe this will be it. Honestly, I don't think I have a fit. Fa- I mean, Singing in the Rain is, I think, the only film from 1952 that I would say I really love. Um, at least out of the ones that I've seen. Um, yeah, Singing in the Rain, Head and Shoulders Above Anything Else from this year, uh, as far as I'm concerned. I have to say I'm also not the biggest I'm also not the biggest high noon fan, so yeah, singing in the rain is pretty easy for that year. Uh my cousin Rachel fans? I haven't seen it. Uh, in parts. Yeah. In part. It was okay. And it's maybe the worst category fraud ever, Richard Burton. Yeah, definitely. In supporting <laughs> for this? Yeah, I think um, our friend at Screen Time Central, I think he has like 80% of screen time. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and he was favorite to win as well, right? With the variety poll. Yeah, I think it was. I think. Yeah, I think it was between him. But uh, I think uh, so I read some newspaper articles. So but they said that Anthony Quinn was very close to him. So there was a possibility for him to to win. But they also predicted High Noon for Best Picture, so The Greatest Show on Earth that really came out of nowhere. It's maybe the kind of movie where you don't admit that you vote for it when you ask, but you do it in secret. <laughs> okay, we're ready to rank these nominees? Go for it. Yeah. Right, Fritz, kick us off. Five to one. So my number five is Gloria Graham, the winner that year. Um, I think I said everything that's necessary. Uh, my number four is Terry Moore. Um, did some nice work. Not the most exciting character. Um, my number three is Colette Marchand. Um, maybe a misguided performance, but still one that um, stays in your mind and at least brings some energy to her movie. My number two is Selma Ritter. Another one, um, a good performance. Um, also one that brings a lot of energy. And my number one head and above everyone else in this category is Gene Hagen. And the quality gap between loser Gene Hagen and winner Gloria Graham is the biggest travesty in the history of the Best Supporting Actors category. Mm-hmm. I said wow. it. Wow. <laughs> well, um, my rank's almost identical. Uh, I also have Gloria Graham at number five and Terry Moore at number four. I actually have Thelma Ritter uh, in number three and Colette Marchand in number two. I I like Thelma Ritter and but it's like it's like what we were saying before she she brings that Thelma Ritter quality uh to everything and I guess maybe for that reason um and since she didn't have a big impact on the story 
uh, since nobody really did, it it just felt not quite as impressive a performance and not as good a performance as I've seen from her in other movies. And Colette Marchand, as we were talking about, just it's a flawed performance to be sure, but it also is the most memorable part of the film. Um, and just when she's not there, the whole thing just kind of peters out. So I have her at number uh, two, but then, yeah, head and shoulders above the rest, many heads and many shoulders above the rest, Gene Hagen, um, would have been an all-timer win in the category. And it's, yeah, frankly, I agree, biggest travesty in the supporting actress history category. My ranking's kind of similar. Um, five, I've got Gloria Graham, just very inconsequential as a character. And um, Four, I've got Colette Marchand. Sorry, I think she should have stuck to ballet i i didn't like the performance it was too broad for me um three i've got terry moore i thought she was a lovely presence but didn't have a whole lot to do uh, i've got thelma rissa at two because i thought she she gave as much as she could um to another character that didn't have any development um and by a million miles uh i've got gene hagan at number one like you guys she was wronged Mm-hmm. We have a website, it's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. We're going to be taking a break for the festive season, um, but we'll be back with a new episode in 2023. Thank you, Fritz, for joining us once again. Again, thank you so much for having me again. It was a pleasure. We're waiting for the list uh, that you're going to drop for Chris of Judy Holiday movies that he can um, watch over the festive season. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, she hasn't done so many movies, so it's not so difficult to watch all of them. <laughs> so that's my assi- That's my assignment then is to just watch her filmography over Christmas. And uh... <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll give it a go. Tune back in next year to to see if uh, Chris has revised his opinions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back in twenty twenty three. See you then. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way. It's too late to say good night. So good morning. Good morning, sunbeams will soon smile through. Good morning, good morning to you and you and you and you. Good morning, good morning. We've gabbed the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Nothing could be grander than to be in Louisiana in, in the morning. morning. In the morning, it's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. Might be just as zippy if we was in Mississippi.